Welcome to our podcast, Diaspora Dialogues. I'm Sambhavi. And I'm Ramya. And in our first season, we will be doing a deep dive into the country of Sri Lanka. In each of our episodes, we'll be inviting subject matter experts, either working on the ground or affiliated with a local organisation, to help inform our conversation about the social, economic and political climate of the nation. My name is uh, Ahilan Kadadami and I teach sociology at the University of Jaffna. And Sujin Selvan, an Australian Tamil entrepreneur, activist and businessman. My name is Sujin Selvan and um, I'm currently in uh, Jaffna. Sujin is currently working with the local community to create further employment within the local IT sector. He travelled from Australia to Jaffna and has spent the last few months in Sri Lanka throughout the COVID-19 crisis. So my experience uh, so far, um, I, I left, the, left the country before the end of the war and I'm just seeing uh, more military present uh, in the street, uh, in the country, in the northeast. Uh, and most of the time, most of the area. Um, so that, that was a, a bit of um, a different experience compared to my last few trips. In our first podcast, we explore COVID-19 and its impact on food security and the economic stability of the rural Northeast. Suddenly there were shortages of food items or people started hoarding items. And um, those at the bottom of the social ladder, particularly uh, day wage workers and so on, suddenly they were unable to make a living and, and they were the most affected because they couldn't purchase their everyday needs, whether it's uh, food or other items, because suddenly prices went up and they didn't have any income. On the other hand, um, there were many uh, relief efforts um, by the government, by NGOs by well-meaning donors, including from the diaspora, sending money back. So there's been a lot of distribution of uh, dry rations and um, there has been some unevenness in terms of how it has reached uh, certain regions. But um, broadly, a a lot of people say that in many villages, there's uh, some amount of dry rations in in the houses. And now, a month after curfew has slowly been lifted, there has been a somewhat return to normalcy, but the economy remains in bad shape. So, for example, if you take the north, which is very much still rural, uh, the fishing community in particular has been badly affected because um, many of them depended on uh, export of high-value seafood like um, blue swimming crab or sea cucumber or... uh, very costly prawn varieties and so on. And now that exports are disrupted, um, suddenly their incomes have fallen. If they were selling a kilo of crabs for 1,400 rupees, suddenly it's only worth 500 rupees. So you can imagine that kind of shock to their incomes. As of late June, Sri Lanka has reported almost 2,000 confirmed cases of COVID-19 with 11 reported deaths. Whilst the militarised response by the Sri Lankan government seems to have succeeded in flattening the curve, the use of strict curfews had notable impact on the economy of the rural north. Those people who are dependent on day wage labour, you know, people who work in construction, masonry work, or those who go and work as wage labourers in farms, their livelihoods have been affected. Um, During the curfew, the the Palmyra community, particularly the toddy tapping community, 
um, who are also socially disadvantaged and have been oppressed along caste lines. Um, they couldn't continue with their livelihood because the toddy taverns were closed. So that affected their incomes. The diaspora has played its role in providing food security for the region, sending funds through local contacts to help secure and distribute dry rations. My particular area where I'm currently, it's uh, near Tondamanawe, this particular village was able to get three times, uh, three um, support through the diaspora, plus the local, there's um, some volunteer organization through the local organization. There was a few other smaller distribution taking place. And it wasn't just limited to the daily workers, but was able to provide support to most of the uh, community. And at one case, there was, there's actually 705 families in this village. All 705 families were able to get support from this um, diaspora. One particular family supported it. Um, at the same time, there was uh, conversation and, uh, like I said, the uneven distribution sometimes caused problems uh, where not everyone's getting that equivalent support. The, the support that I've heard of uh, coming from the diaspora, it's uh, mainly contact-driven, right? So whoever has contacts, whichever villages have uh, contacts, and then uh, they seem to get uh, support. And, and this is really the relief phase, right? And um, uh, the, the Sri Lankan economy is already in a fairly deep crisis. Um, so the, the, the real shock to the economy is going to come in the next few months because we are fast approaching a, a balance of payment crisis, which means that it's going to become very difficult to import a lot of the uh, essential goods, foods that uh, people need. So to give you a sense, um, even though we are an island nation, we uh, import something like 200 million US dollars worth of seafood. Um, we import uh, probably 60% of the milk uh, foods that we consume, um, mainly in the form of uh, milk powder, uh, and, and the list goes on. Fortunately, we are more or less self-sufficient in rice. So how are we going to substitute for all these food items? And you know, when, the, when, the, when the crisis becomes serious, it's people at the uh, lower end who won't be able to uh, get these uh, foods. So malnutrition could become a problem. So we have to kind of uh, prepare for that. The Netherlands government has estimated that COVID-19 will place 2.1 million agricultural households across Sri Lanka at risk of losing their livelihoods. This potential drop in supply, alongside increasing barriers to the logistical movement of food, places renewed significance on these agricultural initiatives, including home gardening. At the moment, currently encouraged by the government and previously by other NGOs is home gardening, I think, which is uh, picking up the the trend and the, there's more awareness of it at the moment. So I think that's a good example of rather than providing a, a food supply of one of, but providing that, uh, encouraging the home gardening, I think that will be a more sustainable way to uh, you know, support people in the long run. While farmers were able to continue with agriculture, backed by the government in the face of growing instability of food supply, 
day wage laborers have suffered significant impacts to their livelihoods. I, I think one way in which perhaps the uh, you know well wishers, donors, including from the diaspora, could help is to kind of help initiate some pilot projects towards figuring out ways of using our local resources because only that much you could do in terms of uh, giving relief and dry rations. We, we really have to very quickly start thinking about sustainable solutions, recognizing that this is, this is a crisis that's not going to go away. Sujin's story is a great example of a member of the diaspora returning to Sri Lanka to help stimulate economic recovery through entrepreneurial efforts. Like I'm more passionate about you know trying to create jobs, trying to uh, create employment, and trying to you know get the you know get people back into work and try and get more people employed. So actually, um, I wanted to start this uh, business last year, sometime August, uh, but it took me almost six months for me to just complete the 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 business process. That certainly was a, a longer and a difficult process compared to Australia. Uh, where I want, like, you know, if I want to do a registered business, I can get that done on the same day where here was a bit longer than that. Um, opening up a bank account, uh, again, was a complicated process. And um, uh, and then, you know, the lease process and everything, it just uh, took me uh, a bit longer time. Another growing part of this long-term solution lies in the growing cooperative movement. Ahilan serves as the chairman of the Northern Cooperative Development Bank, a federation of almost 1,200 active cooperative societies across the northern province. Right, a, a cooperative society uh, is a group of individuals who have come together uh, to carry forward some aspect of their economic life. So it could be to produce something. So fishermen in a village would form a fisheries cooperative. Um, rural women in a village might get together and form a thrift and credit cooperative society where they have a revolving fund to help each other out. Or it could be a multi-purpose cooperative society, which might have as many as you know, 25 uh, cooperative shops in their region, have a rice mill, a bakery, um, and, and many other business. So cooperatives vary in, in, in size and scale. If they can function well, then um, both, you know, they encourage production, encourage the demand for local livelihoods. They can provide credit, you know, if, if, a, if a farmer needs to um, start cultivating, his startup costs can come from his cooperative. The government's efforts have been largely insufficient and critical aid funded by the diaspora has been distributed through local village contacts. Areas without these local contacts have generally faced food shortages. So, you know, if you take the north, we uh, produce way more uh, paddy and rice than we consume. And you know, most of the people in the Vanni, in, in Kilnochi and Mulatiwa, uh, they are involved in uh, rice cultivation. But suddenly they saw that you know, the, the price of rice went up to uh, sometimes 140, 150 rupees a kilo when the government said control price was 100 rupees. So 40-50% increase because of hoarding by private traders. So that's where when if, if cooperatives have the supplies and they have the credit to purchase the goods, then they're also present in the most remote villages and, and then they become a price setter because cooperatives are heavily regulated so they can they have to sell 
at the uh, regulated price. And, and, and when they sell it at a lower price, then the others will also have to bring it down. So it, it helps uh, the rural community in, in, in multiple uh, ways. So there are a range of solutions, either in play or gaining momentum, from short-term initiatives such as dry ration relief efforts and government-led home gardening, to medium to long-term economic solutions like the growing cooperative movement. But Ahilan feels the outlook for the Sri Lankan economy is still troubling, especially in the vulnerable north, and that these solutions need to be part of a bigger picture of economic recovery. If, if I were a young person, um, you know, fresh out of high school or uh, out of university, um, it'll be a pretty scary world in front of me in terms of what are my employment possibilities going forward because the economic structure is changing, right? Um, probably exports are going to remain disrupted. Um, our aspirations to get into uh, certain kinds of jobs, you know, those have vanished. And there's a shift much more towards um, rural production. So on the one hand, exports are being disrupted and it's also going to disrupt the imports that we can uh, get into Sri Lanka um, because we won't have the foreign exchange to purchase those imports. So what are the possibilities locally to create livelihoods, to provide employment? To give you an example, you know, um, from the north, there's a lot of milk production, but uh, almost 50% of the milk that is produced in the north is taken by companies like Nestle, collected from the north, and processed in the southern parts of the country. And it's sold back as processed foods for two and a half times the price for that same liter of milk. Now it's milk food, right? Processed milk food. So can we change that so that we do that value addition in the north itself and if you can do that then the the young people that i'm thinking of they would have jobs in that factory if if there was a young graduate you know he or she could possibly become a manager in that factory become trained so we need to think of ways in which to um, augment the uh, the employment possibilities and i think that's where the kind of work that sojan is doing to try and create employment here locally to give young people skills it's really valuable and important you know uh, i think uh, the cooperatives can do some amount of that but there's a need for that kind of investment and uh, figure out ways to uh, develop the economy as it's changing so i think um, you know people outside people in the diaspora who want to support have to kind of have a sense of this huge change that's going on in the Sri Lankan economy because the same kinds of support or investment uh, may not work and, and, and whatever investments that do come in uh, to the north have to be used effectively. Uh, unfortunately, after the war, we saw a lot of um, money coming from the diaspora, but a lot of that just went into uh, building temples and religious institutions and uh, basically concrete, right? Um, but nothing that is sustainable in terms of giving people a livelihood. So I think there has to be a certain seriousness and ways to channel uh, whatever goodwill towards sustainable solutions. As part of government campaigns, packets of seeds were distributed at low cost to households. 
That said, these measures make up part of what needs to be a much longer term strategy to stimulate agricultural productivity and economic growth in the region. And the diaspora can play an important role in that solution. There's definitely a, a role the diaspora can play. They, definitely they can uh, provide uh, a support, financial support, uh, skill support. They can bring uh, investment into this country and make this um, and you know, Northeast or in Sri Lanka, and mainly that you know can create jobs. There's one happening today. Um, through one of my friends that I met, uh, he's doing a IT startup uh, information session to try and help people. You know, if they're interested in starting up a business, and apparently there's 150 people registered for it, and I was surprised to hear that, and I thought that was a great thing. And I think for a diaspora uh, to look into uh, opportunities that can uh, take place here. And I think uh, visiting here you know, a few times might give you creative ideas and what's missing here, sometimes it's not identified by the local people where you can identify it by someone from outside. My view is you, you, you have to spend a couple of years before you can start an initiative, right? I think it's, it's true of any country, um, whether people go from here abroad or they uh, come from abroad here. So being patient about that, identify uh, partners that you can work with and, and then to strengthen them and to have a very long-term view that there's very little we can do in the, in the short term. So even if it's small amount of investment spread out over a longer period of time, and, and, and seeing the progress and, and, and building on it rather than trying to make a, uh, a, a quick change. And I think um, you know, the more uh, uh, people in the diaspora are, are patient and, and don't play a polarizing role um, would be important because um, the, the reality in my view here is that we're going to have to work with all the communities here. We might have issues about democracy, we might have problems with the state, but it's important to rebuild uh, relations with, between communities during this kind of a crisis because this kind of crisis can also become an opportunity for polarizing forces, people who want to divide, who want to uh, really destroy as well, so to be uh, very aware of that as well. We hope you found this conversation valuable and insightful. We would love to hear your thoughts and your feedback on it. To keep up to date with our next episode and for more information around our podcasts, please hit follow on our Instagram page, diaspora underscore dialogues. And if you liked our episode today, please share our link with your family and your friends. In our next episode, we will be covering the political climate in Sri Lanka in the lead up to the 2020 parliamentary elections in August and the impact that COVID-19 might have on the democratic process. Until then, see you later. Bye.